Blog Talk Radio. coming and boy we've been getting a lot of it up here in the Pacific Northwest a little bit early because it's been very warm up here and today um, I am just so delighted to introduce a guest who's been on the show in the past although it's been a while and I'm just going to say a few words about our guest today before I bring him on and his name is Frank Joseph and today Frank, who is quite the amazing researcher, just such an impressive body of work that Frank has produced for us all. We are going to talk about his new book, Our Dolphin Ancestors, Keepers of Lost Knowledge and Healing Wisdom. And I know that I have always had a special relationship with dolphins and an interest in dolphins. And I know that many of my listeners feel much the same way. So many of us feel this way. And we're going to learn today that this goes even beyond that feeling of affinity, that there is something really magical. And there are things to be researched here that are amazing with regards to our ancestry and the history and the future of our planet. Let me tell you just a little bit more about Frank. Um, He's been on the show before, as I say, and and we've talked to him about his previous books, Before Atlantis and Advanced Civilizations and Prehistoric America. Um, He was the editor-in-chief of Ancient American Magazine, and it's always um, wonderful to have him on. He's been on other very high-profile broadcasts, such as Coast to Coast AM multiple times, And one of his sites that you can visit to learn more about his work is ancientamerican.com. And I am just so delighted to welcome Frank Joseph back to the show. Welcome back, Frank. Oh, thank you so much, Susan. It's great to be back here. Well, I have always admired your work and the depth and expansiveness of it. You you really tackle a topic um, from all angles. And and in a in a very adventurous, meaningful way, and I admire that. Well, that's very kind of you to say that, especially coming from someone with your wonderful background. So it's it's very gratifying, and uh, I, I thank you very much for those kind words. Oh well, well, thank you. And and I know that among my listening audience, and really on the earth itself, we are finding so many 
you know, awakened researchers. We're we're balanced. We we can explore the spiritual topics as well as you know the the depth of of science that's out there because the two aren't really different, really. I mean, truth is truth as we come to discover it. Well, I think what you're doing is you have really put your finger on it. Um, that, as I believe, is, is the cutting edge of science, the future science. Yes. And that is uh, the combination both of the uh, the right brain and the left brain, as it were, where we are hard-grounded in the, the hard sciences. Yes. But we're, we're open to other possibilities. The true scientist, the classical definition of the scientist, is that he doesn't accept everything, but he considers everything. Yeah. In other words, you don't put anything off the table. You certainly concentrate on certain aspects of the problem that uh, you can deal with, but you don't discard everything. Today, science uh, has its mind made up. Um, this is what is acceptable. This is what mm -hmm. is not. And as a consequence, a lot of great evidence is discarded and has to be refound. And I think that's what true scientists like yourself are, are doing. Yes, yes. Well, you know, as I've often um, thought of it, I mean, either you're interested in truth or not. I mean, it's really that simple. I mean, do you want to know the truth about our planet and about the multiverse or not? That's right. it. Or, or is something more important? Is your career more important or is your yeah. status amongst your, your fellow academics more important? <laughs> yeah. uh, and, and unfortunately for a lot of so-called scientists, those lesser considerations mean more to them than finding the truth. Yeah, and, and to me, that's not really the, that's not science to me. Science to me is the kind of adventurous exploration mm -hmm. that you're engaged in, you know, going, being willing to explore, to expand the box, because that box really doesn't exist. I mean, we keep thinking it does, but it doesn't. Well, it doesn't for people like you and me, I hope. <laughs> well, let's um, venture in to this latest work of yours. And as I said in the introduction, there is no doubt, I know that if I were to ask my listeners, raise your hand if you feel a connection to dolphins, just about everybody would, and maybe some of them. I've actually had guests on who, who hold dolphin retreats, and, you know, there are just all kinds of ways that many of us have felt this connection, but you take this even deeper, Frank, in terms of what this connection actually may mean historically and for our future. Yeah, it's. Uh, I, I feel kind of uh, hesitant, even embarrassed, talking about it uh -huh. because uh, dolphinology or uh, animal animal behaviorism is not in in my background or my yeah. expertise. Yeah. My background is primarily in archaeology, and to write about this, I was hesitant. But I had an experience, as thousands of people have, including yourself, yes. with dolphin imagery, and that's what really got me in that particular direction was this one experience that I had really only about two years ago. Yes, yes. And, and you know, that often is what happens to, to open our eyes, um, I, I think, to, to a kind of an expansiveness. It's that intuitive research is what, what I tend to think of it as, is, is it ah. opens us up to a new area. Yeah. Well, the, it was an eye, as a matter of fact, yes. that got me involved. <laughs> um, I was visiting Honduras just on a vacation uh, back in uh, 2013, and um, I had an opportunity to get in the water with dolphins, as thousands of other people have done. Yes. Not, to, not to swim with dolphins, though. I, I don't like the idea of 
sea parks and sea worlds and all that where the dolphins are are minimalized and turned into circus Uh, animals. I don't care for that. So I was down in Honduras visiting um, one of the world's leading dolphin research centers, and it was open to the public, and they would encourage visitors to come, but the dolphins were not put through tricks, pretty much. They were they were studied, and uh, the dolphins were <laughs> actually given the opportunity to come and go whenever they wanted, pretty much. And um, so it was, in the, it was in that scientific climate that I was happy to be with a dolphin in the water. And I'd never, this never happened before for a Midwestern boy, you know, <laughs> the closest dolphin you get would be in an aquarium somewhere, you know. Uh-huh. Uh, so I was in the water with this thing, and it came shooting across the bay. You know, this, it, this animal weighs close to 900 pounds. It can go up to over 60 miles an hour. And uh, it was like this gigantic torpedo shooting across the sea. And then when it uh, it arrived with uh, by itself with the uh, trainer, if you want to call it, or handler, I don't know, <laughs> um, it opened its mouth, and I was able to see these 88 razor-sharp teeth. And it was an awe-inspiring experience because I knew that this animal could break me in half like a breadstick if it wanted to. But, yeah. but the thing that really... Uh, really changed my life, I suppose, uh, was when I saw its eye. Because I had been expecting kind of like a dog's eye. I knew that dolphins were mammals, uh, uh, land mammals at one time that had evolved in the sea. So I expected some kind of a canine uh, expression. And I was shocked because the eye looking back at me from this dolphin was entirely human. It was a human eye. And more than that, it was like I was standing in the presence of Sir Isaac Newton or mm-hmm. someone of incredibly high intelligence. I not only intuited that, I knew that. And I, I was shocked. It was like nothing I ever expected. I spoke with the other tourists that were just like myself, and they had similar experience. Uh, beyond that, the animal scoped me out. I had the distinct impression that it was downloading all information about me, all my conscious and subconscious mind, my medical history, uh, everything, it, it, within a matter of like a nanosecond, it had downloaded all information about me. It was like it had scanned me. And th- that this experience was such that I had to learn more about it. And so over the next four months, which is incredible considering how short a period of time it was, I was obsessed with learning everything I could possibly learn about dolphins. And a lot of the information that I got was not from books, but from the latest research that's available online. I would have been unable to write this book without uh, access to the Internet. And the sources that I went to were usually almost exclusively not New Age or anything like that at all, but universities and other dolphin research centers. And the information that's being learned about dolphins now uh, is astounding and is not making the nightly news because there probably is so much of it. And it's just like gaining its own inertia. And within four months, I had achieved enough information about that I could write this book, which is incredible. It usually just takes me much longer to write a book than four months. It was, And when I read the book now, which came out really only last April, it's, I look at it and I figure, who wrote this? Uh-huh. It, it was as though I had been taking dictation or wow. something. And no, it's a great book. No, those are amazing really cool. when they come that way. I've heard other authors say that, and that, that means it was oh definitely meant to be. Well, it was strange. I, I read the book. I say, oh, this is really cool. You know, 
Who wrote this? <laughs> you know, I, I couldn't possibly have written. And if somebody oh had sat God. me down and said, you have to rewrite this book, it would be completely impossible. I couldn't, uh-huh. possibly, couldn't possibly do it. So in a blaze of something or other, this book came out, and I'm very glad I did, as hesitant as I was, because I tried to approach this problem from the point of view as a reporter, not as an expert. I'm not an expert in this at all. I'm just a, a human being that has this experience that thousands of other people have had. And I just wanted to really take it from, from that point of view. As I'm showing this information say, look at all this cool stuff. Isn't this really all the hard work other people have done, not yeah. me. I, I just yeah. have put it together. That's all. But well, that's, that's one of your talents is to be able to, to my integrate My only talent. It's <laughs> <is laughs> find it. resources. And you know what I appreciate about your book as well? It's filled with stories from antiquity and just throughout history. It's it's such a comprehensive exploration that, that um, clearly you were led to, to multiple resources. And they're not just present day. I mean, just the different no. accounts of, no. of how – we have explored this relationship with dolphins. Now, um, one thing I'd like to, to jump right into here is, you know, you talk of the dolphin's eye and the incredible wisdom. And by the way, when you speak of that, I think it's just amazing how it drew you into an expanded awareness. And I know one of your books or one of your, cha- your books, maybe you'll write multiple books on dolphins, I don't know, but one of your chapters is on telepathy and and I'm sure we'll we'll get to that but but what I'd like to focus on right now is the physical um characteristics and how you began to explore these these parallels and and the aquadynamic nature for example of of the human body and um I I wonder if you could just touch upon that right now these physical similarities and where did we come from you know how how do these relate well the first couple of chapters of the book deal with something known as the aquatic ape theory or the aquatic ape hypothesis which has gained tremendous credibility over the years it's actually one of the oldest theories known in in science the aquatic ape theory is basically this that our earliest ancestors did begin to evolve, as we've always been told, as uh, simian creatures that we lived on the African savanna for quite a while. And then environmental changes in the environment uh, prompted um, evolutionary changes in ourselves. What the aquatic ape theory says is that about 3 million years ago, say 2.8, maybe 3.1 million years ago, there was major flooding in East Africa. Of this there is no doubt that there was a ma- there were major floods taking place all across East Africa about 3 million years ago and that the animals that lived there at that time were forced w- faced with a challenge and that was adapt to this uh, aquatic environment or face extinction. And many animals went extinct at that time. Other animals uh, such as that which became the dolphin, did not. It became. It was originally a land mammal, as I said, and it became a sea mammal. It, it adapted successfully to the sea and pursued its evolutionary destiny in the sea. Our ancestors, according to the aquatic ape theory, were faced with precisely the same challenge that affected everybody else, and that we were also forced to either adapt to marine conditions or else go extinct. Yeah. And there, there are numerous indications surviving indications in you and me, in your body and mine, that our ancestors were in the 
same path taken by the dolphins, and that we were adapting to becoming sea mammals at the same time. The only difference was is that where our ancestors were located in East Africa, the seas retreated, and we were thrown back on the land. Yeah. And so when we were thrown back on the land, we were a changed creature. We were now upright, where we had not been upright before. We became Homo erectus in the sea. When, that, when you walk into the water, what happens? You can feel the, the center gravity of your body, the center orientation of your body, shift higher up into your chest cavity. This prompts mammals to walk upright, like the uh, Japanese macaques. They're uh-huh. the same. They're in this, going through the same process now. They live in these little hot pools in um, Hokkaido, and they are beginning to walk upright more normally than any other uh, non-human primate. So what happened with our ancestors, we got thrown back on the land with these sea mammalian traits, and we pursued our destiny on the land. Yeah. What I suggest, and my only contribution to this, I don't even know if it is a contribution, is that I believe that our species has undergone several aquatic ape, theory, aquatic ape phases yeah. in which we were on the land, we are totally adapted to the land, and then here comes the water again. Yeah. And we had to make that choice of going back into the sea. And each time we went back into the sea, we adapted more and more traits. And some of those traits are still with us today, as I said. One of them, the most obvious, I suppose, is between your thumb and your index finger. There's a flap of skin there. This is the remains of a web. Our fingers and our toes were webbed at one time. You're not going to find this on other primates. They do not develop this. Go to an ape or a chimpanzee, they do not have the same web of skin that we have. As far as the eye is concerned, and and this is an interesting point that uh, you, you mentioned, the dolphin eye has something called the tarpeum lucidium. The tarpeum lucidium is a a diamond-shaped feature in the eye, which allows the dolphin to see in uh, lightless conditions a lot better, in really really dark conditions. It it, it opens the eye to uh, uh, lesser light, and it can see better. The tarpeum lucidium is precisely what our ancestors had until very recently. Cro-Magnon man, for example, which is the last stage before um, Homo sapiens or, or truly modern man, Homo sapiens also had the tarpeum lucidium uh, when he migrated to Europe, and he he used the tarpeum lucidium during the Ice Age because light conditions were uh, far less than they are today. But then by the time uh, the Ice Age ended, our ancestors had divested themselves of the tarpeum lucidium. We no longer have that because they were now living in uh, brighter conditions. So there's... That's just one indication of numerous dozens or hundreds of actual physical connections that we have to the dolphin. Yes. You know, when you speak of how the water receded and then the water appeared again, I, I was. it's funny. Before your book even came along, Frank Joseph, this may seem a non sequitur comment, but I was just kind of, I had this feeling of just observing the earth. You know, if you just stand outside of the earth, and observe it, what would you say? It's a water planet. It's a water planet. And, you know, we don't think about that standing here on the land, but but this this planet is dominated by water. And, and so, to me, it makes complete logical sense that, and, and very consistent with your theory, that we would have water origins and may return to the water. 
Well, it's a very strange observation you make, actually. You can you can take it even further. The relation of the landmass to the water on our planet Earth is almost exactly the same as the relation between our physical body and the salt water that's in our body and our blood. Mm-hmm. So it's as though we are indeed uh, microcosms of the, the very planet that we live on. It's also important to realize that we live on a very dynamic planet. Yes. It goes through vast, major changes constantly, even within our lifetime. So it stands to reason that something like the aquatic ape theory, which tells about these populations of early humans or humanoids having to face massive flooding or yes. extinction and adapting like all other animals do, uh, it makes it a, a credible scenario. It does. Uh, Richard Attenborough now, who, uh, who is, or David Attenborough, the uh, great naturalist, yes. um, BBC commentator and so on, he's now uh, gone and um, adap- adopted the um, aquatic ape theory. Uh-huh. Uh, now, there have been other naturalists now. It, it still is ridiculed by yeah. mainstream scientists, but I believe that, that there is a definite change in, in the wind as regards that. Well, you know, often truth is ridiculed. I mean, there's there's no question about that. I mean, yeah. um, when when you mentioned, you know, you were in the presence of Isaac Newton, for example, at the at the beginning of, the, I mean, just look at the paradigm shifts we've seen in physics, and so, um, you know, and our natural, our understanding of the natural world, um, you know, it's shifting. You know, now we're hearing that species are more collaborative. You know, gone. It's beginning to fade this idea of survival of the fittest. That maybe collaboration actually means something. And boy, you know, I'm kind of stretched. I'm going beyond your book, although not really. No, no, um, I they don't, very. But you, you talk about no. that. No. I mean, how the dolphins, um, and maybe jumping ahead to they, they have evidence of some um, collaborative um, civilization. I mean, there's so little that we know about what they are. In fact, maybe we'll launch into this a little bit by this notion of this notion, and I have pondered exactly this, and, and so I loved it. It was so synchronistic to see it in your book. Technology does not necessarily equate to intelligence or to advancement. I mean, we have we think it does, but that's just our way of looking at things, which is really very limited, and if we can expand beyond this, what might we discover about the dolphins that indicate that they are they are acting in highly intelligent ways, even beyond your looking into that eye? Well, I brought up um, an analogy with a movie that came out years ago, Forbidden Planet. Yes. And it was about the the, the krill on this planet. It's, of course, science fiction, but sometimes science fiction, like Jules Verne, can look forward into scientific Often reality does. in the future. And uh, in this movie uh, that came out, I guess, in 1956, something like that, uh, talked about a planet on which these super intelligent beings had evolved called the Krill. And they had uh, developed all this fantastic technology, just unbelievable stuff. And then they had become so brilliant that they'd gone beyond um, all technology. There was no need for instrumentalities at all. They had no technology that they were 
so brilliant that their their will and their intelligence was so high that they had no more need for instrumentalities. Yeah. I think that's something with the dolphins. Uh, they don't need uh, our technology. Our technology is a wonderful thing. We've done great stuff with it. But at the same time, if you stand back and, like you said, uh, try to achieve some level of objectivity, uh, is our society really successful? Yeah. Uh, compare it, say, to a very primitive society that has virtually no technology but lives very close to nature, like, say, the Polynesian people did before European contact. Who, who possesses the more superior society, the happier, the healthier society? Uh, the society that has limited technology but is able to live in nature or the society that has high technology but resorts to things like waterboarding and atomic bombs, yes. which is which is really the better society. I mean, the technology is great, uh, but the technology is supposed to be uh, a servant. As, as I think someone once observed, technology is a wonderful servant but a very cruel god. And that's something that that really the dolphins seem to have gone beyond because they are such an incredibly brilliant species. Uh, it is now generally recognized that their intelligence does, in fact, surpass the chimpanzee uh, far. The chimpanzee was regarded until recently as the most intelligent animal outside of man. And it's now believed that the just the sheer known brain power of the dolphin exceeds that of the chimpanzee. And there are many researchers now that are beginning to believe that if not the intelligence, then the awareness of dolphins is beyond our own because the amount of information that passes through a dolphin's mind in in such incredible speeds of time far outstrips anything we can do. One example is when a dolphin, and this is just a very basic example, yes. when a dolphin is swimming through the water, it can swivel its eyes so that one eye is looking forward and the other eye is looking backward. And the information that it takes in, both from what is coming and what is behind it, arrives in the dolphin brain simultaneously and it can access that information at once. Now, that's something we are totally unable to do, not only anatomically, but even if we could anatomically look backwards and forwards at the same time, we'd fall over. There's no way we could possibly <laughs> process that information. They process that information immediately and thoroughly, and that is only one level of the information that they take in. They're able, to, at the same time, while this is going on, they can taste the water. Yes. What that means is when they're tasting the water, they're going to be able to tell what other animals are in the area, what other dolphins are in the area. They're able to taste the health level of the dolphins in their own pod. Again, all this information is instantly recorded simultaneously with the dolphin mind. Uh, it's When I began to find out information like this that is being discovered right at this moment as we're speaking, uh, I, I believed, I came to the conclusion that they are more in raw intelligence in, in terms of incoming information. They're far beyond anything that we can possibly do. If you could take the information that a dolphin t is, is is getting and put it into your, your mind, your your brain would explode. There's just <laughs> no way you could handle it. Either that or it would mean nothing. You wouldn't be able to, to understand it at all. And I think that these creatures are 
far more mysterious and far more brilliant than anything that we've been able to understand, except until this moment. We're beginning to get an appreciation just now. Yes, yes. You know, I love having you on my show, Frank, because you really make me think expansively and reflect. And as you were speaking, one of the things that flowed in my mind through all of your comments just now is what if a true measure of intelligence is resiliency in a way that, you know, kind of a theory of resiliency. When you think of all the things, for example, that could threaten this planet, you know, um, you know, even even a, a meteor, you know, you can think of a lot of things. Um, our technology is so vulnerable, and, and we're vulnerable. You you say it's our servant, and it is. But when it's gone, you know, even a even a simple solar flare like a Carrington event would just wipe it out, you know. Um, and then what? And so when you think about civilization and what it is and how you measure it, and how you evaluate it, and in true intelligence, I think resiliency is a measure, and we surely don't have it. We, are, we, we have crutches. I mean, we're totally on crutches compared to a species like the dolphins, who um, they have intelligence, and they're able to survive, and we're going to explore some more about some evidence of even how they communicate. And and so um, who really is the master? Well, I don't know if we need to say mastering the planet one or the other. We're all one. But who is the master of their environment in terms of of survival and, and even just joy? How about that? Talk about the joy of dolphins. Well, that's what dolphins live for. They live to have fun. Yes. <laughs> Yes. That's their that's their number one goal in life is to have as much fun as possible, and this explains uh, why dolphins and children have such human children have such tremendous affinity one for another. Because what what does a kid like to do most? Well, it likes to have fun. That's the number one goal in life for a kid. And that when a child goes in the water, the dolphins instantly know that, and that's why their relationship with children is so intimate and so immediately affable. Uh, I was able to determine that the dolphin's relationship with children is totally different than the relationship with men and with women. Uh, they they like men and women also. They cooperate and work with them, but in a completely the relationship is is utterly different. So the dolphin's big philosophy of life is joy. I suppose that's yes. The, but yes. but but joy in many things and yes. on many levels. Yes. So they have a, it's like someone in an, in an art gallery. You know they appreciate many types of art, and it's the same thing I think with the dolphin. They don't just like to flop around in the water and race around. They have they're interested in many many things, and they they enjoy themselves and all that. So the dolphins smile, although it's part of their anatomy uh, really kind of reflects their philosophy of life which is to have as much fun as possible if you can't have fun doing it then don't do it you know it we often speak on this show about this notion of you know heaven on earth or a quantum lead to to a ascended level and and how that would be you know what it would be like to live in such a way um, to be just you know joyous explorers of the world you know so many of us feel that, that we're co-creating lives more and more like that. And yet, look at this species out there. You know, they're they're living it. They they are living 
in this higher way right in front of our eyes and and showing us what it's yes, like. Yes, they are. I think the the thing with the dolphins is that we need to realize well the the book really that I wrote is is less about dolphins than it is about dolphins' relationship with us. Yes. And so I'm I try to make comparisons between the dolphins and ourselves because there is definitely a relationship going yes. on. I mean, no one can can doubt that. And I believe that this relationship goes back uh, three million years, and I think that both our ancestors and the dolphins' ancestors shared the water at the same time. And I think our relationship was was so close that it's possible that uh, species of dolphins, uh, like the spotted dolphin or the bottlenose dolphin, uh, are in fact proto-human beings. That this is a, a very radical statement to make, yeah. admittedly. Yes. Um, <laughs> but I, I'm not hesitant to do it because I believe it's the truth, and I don't care what anybody thinks that, about it. That's the way. Uh, you know, uh, I'm not out to change anybody's mind, uh-huh. or you know, if people believe it fine. If they don't, that's great too. But I believe that the dolphins, or certain, I said, certain species of dolphins, not all of them, I think are descended from uh, proto-humans. And the same as uh, we are dis- descended from proto-humans. The only difference is is that those proto-humans that became dolphins, um, in our case, they returned to the land and they became us. And as a con- as a consequence of that, we are an extremely conflicted species. This was the question that I-, I posed. What really makes human beings so different than every other animal on the planet? And we're different from every other animal on the planet, not because we're smarter or greater than anybody else. We're different because we are the only animal that sins against those very forces that brought us into existence. That our species, for all of its wonderful achievements, like the Hubble telescope and medicine and so forth, our species really resembles a virus. Uh, We destroy everything. We destroy not only all other animals and plants and all other life, but we destroy those very forces that support ourselves. We are a self-destructive species. There's no doubt about that. And I wondered, like, why is that? There's no other animal on the planet does that. And that's because I believe we are extremely conflicted. We're hybrids. We're neither one or the other. We were supposed to be sea mammals. We changed our minds on that. We came back on the land. Then the sea came back, and then we're trying to be sea mammals again. And now we're thrown back on the land and we're trying to adapt. So we have all these sea mammalian traits with us on land. And as a consequence, uh, this hybrid species that we are uh, is very troublesome. And we're going to have to make, I think, an evolutionary choice in the far future to either stay on the land to become better stewards of the environment or else... If that doesn't work, we're going to have to go back into the sea because we cannot continue like this. We are we're headed to a dead end, and many species uh, have perished before us. Yes, many species have gone extinct. As a matter of fact, it's believed that more there are more extinct species in the history of Earth than there are those living today. And human beings are not exempt uh, from that iron law. And so, as a species, we're going to have to make up our minds: be better human beings on land. And if we can't, we're going to have to quit the land and go back into the sea, or else we're going to go extinct. Yes. And and that's the, and that's and nature couldn't care less. We're either going to be a successful species, or we're going to be an extinct species. That's the way nature uh, regards all other uh, creatures on life. And so there are some 
um, theorists like Jacques Cousteau comes to mind, and he's not the only one, who believe that we need to quit the land and go back into the sea. It's not something you do overnight, <laughs> but it's... It, and uh, there's a, a wonderful, interesting... Uh, document in the Leningrad, it's called the St. Petersburg Hermitage Museum now. And this document is uh, an old ancient parchment that's been copied over many times, which tells about how literally scientists on Atlantis thousands of years ago were trying to re-engineer human beings to go back into the sea. So this problem has been recognized for many thousands of years. And um, that's something to consider, something to think about. Well, you know, as you as you say that, based on, you know, no doubt, just the um, the memories that are resident within us, um, even from ancient times, those things that we may not be fully conscious of, somehow we must know. Planet is vulnerable in that way that it can become a water planet very quickly. I mean, when we look at you know that the ice caps melting now, and and you yep. know um, how the the water is coming again, um, and look what happened with Atlantis. I mean uh, that it would make sense that we would gravitate. And truthfully, again, when it comes down to is intelligence as a species, does it really have to do with being in communion with your environment? and one another, and also long-term intelligent survival um, in a peaceful and joyous way, you know, even a playful way, which is the way the right. dolphins are. And and, and I, it makes sense at, at a higher level and in a logical way. Well, things like technology and philosophy and theology and things like this are all to, ex- to assist in our progress. And our progress is not some indefinite idea of making more money over time or more prosperity that might be a actually a small part of it might be a, a basic part of it because you have to be in a good mood in order to do important things but our evolutionary uh, progress has to involve a greater unfolding of our consciousness yes. so that and we use this consciousness to appreciate uh, our our universe more and more the goal of human beings is to um to appreciate things more, to learn more about things. That is especially the, the human destiny. The human destiny is knowledge, and because there's joy in knowledge, to finding out more and more about our environment. I don't mean just our physical environment, but everything that surrounds us. So the, the goal of humanity is not uh, to create larger armies and uh, bigger weapons and, and have more money and more self-indulgence. That, those are not the, the goals of uh, of our species. The true goal of our species is to acquire greater and greater knowledge, greater and greater comprehension. And um, the dolphins seem to be outstripping us in that regard as far as their consciousness of the aware and awareness of their environment and their knowledge, their incredible knowledge. Um, just a tiny example of that was a dolphin uh, went uh, was working for the U.S. Navy one time and uh, excavated on its own an extremely rare and very old torpedo, a torpedo that had been used in the 19th century. I think there's only one other example that exists. I have a photograph of it in the book, as a matter of fact. And the the dolphin went out of its way to alert its trainers or handlers or whatever you want to call them uh, 
to the existence of this rare torpedo, which is found on its own. So how much archaeological knowledge alone do the dolphins have? What could yeah. the dolphins, if we could establish communication with them, what would they tell us about our, our real origins, our real history? Uh, maybe they could find Atlantis for us. Maybe they could find uh, the lost uh, Melanesian uh, uh, airliner. Uh, oh, I, I'm they, sure they, they could. And What, you what know, things could they re- revive for us? And I think that if we could learn everything the dolphins could share with us, it would totally transform our, our knowledge of who we are, where we've come from, what we are, and in a way, it would. It appears that over time, over the generations, that is that is what the dolphins are trying to do. I think the dolphins are trying, as a species, very gently and slowly, to acclimatize us to intercommunications with them. And when we are on that level of intercommunication, that we can we can understand them and they can understand us. That will totally transform our world. Will totally transform it. Maybe that'll save it. Who knows? You know, something I really want to explore with you on this note is um, this notion of telepathic image transference. And, you know, Joseph Campbell speaks of higher consciousness. There is kind of a language of imagery. Many of us who have had higher experiences, and a lot of people who have listened to this show have had some level of higher experience, can attest that there is something to it, it 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 defaults to a kind of language of imagery and and what i'd like to explore with you when it when we talk about the dolphins communicating to us what about this telepathic landscape what about the notion of of imagery being being transferred um between us in a way without the need of of a kind of language that that can start to connect us. Well, I think a, a real good example of that was a colleague of uh, Dr. Hertzing. Dr. Hertzing is probably the most famous, if not the uh, the leading delphinologist in the world today. And uh, she writes in one of her wonderful books about a colleague who uh, was putting dolphins through a number of uh, tricks, not. Uh, not to demonstrate anything for an audience, but in order to uh, gauge certain levels of dolphin intelligence. And she was going to put uh, this one uh, set of dolphins through a pre-programmed set of tricks, like regaining rings or something like that. And um, before the the delphinologist, the the woman that was running the uh, experiment, could engage the experiment. She was thinking about it. She was just thinking about, well, the dolphins are going to have to do this particular thing. And while she was thinking about it, the dolphins began doing precisely the type mm-hmm. of routine that she had envisioned. In other words, she wasn't thinking in words, but she was thinking in images of what the dolphins were going to do when they began doing it. So there, here is an, a, one of numerous examples Again, and this is a university-trained experimenter. This yeah. is not some channeler or something like that. Yeah. Uh, who reported that the dolphins had picked up on the imagery from her mind and had actually executed uh, the, precisely the type of complex imagery that she was thinking of. Um, this is an example of how the dolphin communication is telepathic, but not exclusively telepathic. Yeah. They have their squeaks okay. and their squeals. They do have a form of language. They do understand our spoken language, at least to a degree. Uh, There was a doctor, uh, 
uh, Lilly back in the 1960s who did extensive dolphin research early on. And he thought that the only way to communicate with dolphins was through a kind of spoken language, because the dolphins do have this um, series of, of squeals and squeaks they make. And he tried for years to try to understand them, and he tape-recorded thousands upon thousands of hours of dolphin squeaks and squeals. and couldn't understand nothing, nothing, nothing worked at all. And by accident, he played back one of these tapes at a very slow speed, and he was astonished to hear the dolphins speaking in English, repeating some of the very words that he said, but at a very reduced speed. Um, he heard his own, some of his own commands being repeated by the dolphins. He heard some conversation by his wife being repeated verbatim, by, quoted by the dolphins. So this means that the dolphins can speak as we do, but at a frequency that is far beyond anything we can hear with our, our normal hearing. It's like you uh, going into a room, a silent room, and you don't hear anything at all, uh -huh. and yet that room is filled with voices. But you need a radio to turn it on. When you turn on the radio, you hear these voices. That's because the radio picks up a different frequency. Yeah. And that is exactly what the dolphins are doing. They are not only listening to us, telepathically they're also listening to us sonically uh -huh. and as i said they're also tasting the water about us and all this information is flowing into their brain simultaneously and for us we limp far behind in this level of high level communication yeah well i would hope tuning into the more compassionate among us because there are certainly those who who are not treating dolphins well um or their environment and no. yet one would hope that they're tuning in to the 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 people who are raising their consciousness and, and who care. Well, all we can do is hope in that regard, but I believe that the dolphins are, are listening to everything about us. They're they're not selective in just uh the positive things, that they're acquisitors of knowledge. And um so they probably know more about us than we know about ourselves. It's very, well, very possible. Maybe they know about the I would like I don't know if a dolphin can have hope for you know a species that's cohabiting their planet. And, and, yes, and, I don't know. I don't know if they have hope that that maybe yeah. they could if they could begin to tune in to people like us and people who are um, choosing to raise our consciousness and 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 treat our environment with respect and more and more people. I have another question for you that I don't want to this is this show's going by so fast I knew that it would and I just can't resist touching upon this because it does have to do with this wonderful um empathic amazing relationship that dolphins have with individual human beings and I will preface this with a very brief story um I had a guest on this show some time ago who who um she actually runs dolphin retreats and by the way they are not caged in any way they go and swim out in the ocean in Hawaii and whatever dolphins show up that's who they interact with you know they they don't um they it's not one of those um um controlled environments and so anyway um, but this was kind of not to too much relevant to this, except she knew a lot about dolphins. Well, she had somebody that was with her that was not part of this, really, who was not a good swimmer. And I kind of relate to this because I'm not really a strong swimmer myself. And she 
he was there in Hawaii, and she lost track of him in the water, basically. Oh. And she's like, oh, my gosh, he's drowned because oh. he wasn't a strong swimmer. Oh. And he had gone a little bit too far out or something had happened, and she oh. couldn't find him. Well, oh. guess what, Frank? She found him. He had been brought to shore by this group of dolphins. And, again, this was not a managed environment. They were just swimming out in Hawaii. I mean, they were not. And somehow he had gotten too far out, and he had gotten oh. into a little trouble. And and she found him in this state of almost, you know, bliss with these dolphins oh, who had geez. helped him to shore. It was like a miracle. And and so you tell other stories. And here's a firsthand account. She's a friend of mine. That's why she was on this show. She's someone I've known uh-huh. for years and years and years. And and um, before she even did anything in the spiritual community, and and so it's a firsthand friend account of something like that happening. And you tell other stories like this. So so tell us about how dolphins historically and in the present day are known to help us. Well, stories of dolphins rescuing human beings go back thousands of years mm-hmm. to numerous cultures around the world. One of the most recent stories involved Dick Van Dyke, the uh, television celebrity. And he was uh, vacationing in Mexico only about four or five years ago. And uh, he was on a beach, and he took one of these uh, flimsy rubber rafts, these styrofoam rafts, you know, and he's floating around there. And he fell asleep on uh, on this raft. And when he woke up, he was far out to sea. He couldn't even see land. Uh-huh. So he realized he was dead. He was he uh-huh. just panicked. Before he could even think what to do, within minutes, a dolphin, he says a porpoise, could have been a There are differences between porpoises and dolphins. We don't have time to go into that. But he says a porpoise, but it could have been a dolphin. Yeah. A dolphin appeared and pushed him <laughs> in his crummy little rubber raft, all the way across the sea, back exactly to where he had started and saved his life. And he said, you won't believe it, but this dolphin or this porpoise saved my life. The question arises, first of all, how did the dolphin find Dick Van Dyke in the middle of the Gulf of Mexico? Uh Second of all, why would a wild animal, this is not a trained animal, why would a wild animal go to the trouble of pushing this human being across miles of the sea, and how did he get him back to precisely where he began? So there obviously are telepathic or empathic energies at work here that are far beyond uh, recognized science. These stories are common. Uh, They go back, as I said, to ancient Greece. The Greeks documented literally dozens of stories like this that exist to this day. Undoubtedly, there were hundreds more. So this is the only animal uh, in the entire outside species that goes to such regular trouble of rescuing us when we're in danger. There is an exception, however, and that is during wartime, dolphins save very few people. When When there's a war going on, they generally stay away. So when people are drowning, when men are drowning in their ships or are at sea, they are rarely, if ever, saved by dolphins. So yeah. that's something uh, to take into consideration. But that in, in peacetime, peacetime, 
Uh, dolphins save people not just from drowning but from sharks. There are numerous stories about people who are surrounded by sharks. They're about to attack, and all of a sudden these dolphins appear out of nowhere, fight the dolphin, fight the sharks away, and escort the human beings back to shore. I mean, this is not just a fluke. This is these are not dolphins that escape from some seaquarium somewhere. These are wild dolphins in the water, and it's been going on. There are reports all through medieval times, from uh, cultures that have nothing to do with each other say the same thing. So it's a real phenomenon. Yes. Oh, I I know for a fact because I I heard it from a friend, and then I yes. saw it confirmed in your book. It's a beautiful story. It's a wonderful story. In fact, to me, it was personally reassuring in a sense that that um, you know, it just it's an amazing. Dolphins save not only human beings; they also save dogs that have been thrown uh-huh. overboard. There's a, a, a very famous and well-seen YouTube, uh, which depicts a dog that um, slid off the back end of a, a yacht in the Aegean, in the um, Eastern Mediterranean, and the the dog is floundering in the in shark-infested waters, and this dolphin appears out of nowhere slips under the dog and takes the dog back to the boat. <laughs> and it's a true story. Yep. It, it actually happened. Yep. There have been many uh, stories of not only dogs that are saved by dolphins, but apparently dogs love dolphins in the wild, which is really bizarre because it's very difficult many times to distinguish a dolphin's fin from a shark fin, yeah. especially at a distance. But dolph- But dogs often just leap right in the water and start begin playing with um, dolphins. Also, dolphins and cats, if you can imagine such a thing, dolphins and cats have a very close relationship. Cats love dolphins. I find that so fascinating. And uh, and dolphins are very, and here's this little cat uh, on a a pier somewhere, and then there's a dolphin which weighs over 600 pounds, this big, huge thing. The cat is totally unafraid of the dolphin, and the dolphin uh, plays very gently with the cat, and the cat will tap the snout of the dolphin. And it, you know, I'm like, what on earth? There's That's obviously so some kind of instant recognition going on here between these two animals. Yes, yes. You know, um, I think that that we we so need to think more expansively about. Um, the dolphins, because, you know, when you speak of even the relationship between dogs and cats and dolphins, it's not as if we are not familiar as a species with animals that care about us and that have compassion, although I will tell you it's even higher what you're talking about with respect to the dolphins. You know, why is it so surprising that a dolphin could could do some of these things that, you know, um, a lassie, <laughs> for example, might yeah, do. You yeah. know, there's there's no, in fact, even higher than that. And, you know, we can hardly even, we're already at the end of, of the live show, and I swear I could explore this so much more because, you know, there's even more that you go into in your book with um, some pretty cool stuff towards the end where you get really exploratory um, about um, it's it pretty radical, and, and and there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, I think that's exactly it. And you know, there's just so many things that you made me reflect on. I mean, even at the beginning of the book, I'll tell you a note I made when you started talking about biofluorescence. I immediately oh, yeah. wrote the note light beings 
because oh, yeah, uh, yeah. you know we talk about evolution and and even yeah. people who've had NDEs and I've had them on my show including a uh-huh. diver who drowned who, who story is quite well known he uh-huh. saw that we became light beings and you know here oh. here we're seeing some evidence of that in the ocean i was thinking and isn't that cool yeah, yeah, absolutely. We could go on and on and on, and 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 unfortunately, we are to the end of our live show. Our for, but but you know, I feel so fortunate to have spent this time with you again. You know, once again, Frank, I just love having you on. I mean, you just make me think and explore, and I know you take the listeners right along with us. Um, now and in the future, those who will listen to the podcast. And and let me just say thank you from my heart for your continuing work and for sharing in such a wonderful, open way with all of us. Oh, well, the pleasure is all mine, Susan. And uh, I, I just love having uh, these. They're not interviews with you. I feel that they're really <laughs> conversations. And you have you bring so much uh, to these conversations. And uh, so it's it's always a great pleasure for me to be able to have these talks with you and I hope we can do it again oh, sometime. Me too. Next time we'll have to do it sooner cuz I just love to to explore more with you cuz I enjoy it. You know, this is this is having fun to me just to to really Absolutely. explore a topic and and enjoy a conversation. That's what it's all about and and again, and and do tell people, is there a particular place they can look for you? I put down ancientamerican.com, and I wasn't sure if you had other resources where we can find you. I know you're on the Inner Traditions page. That's one place. And is there any other place that you'd like to let the audience know about where they can learn more about your work? Well, uh, first of all, the best place to get my book, uh, Our Dolphin Ancestors, is just at Amazon.com. That's uh-huh. the cheapest way to get it and the fastest way to get it. And uh, as far as, as myself, no, uh, at uh, ancientamerican.com, that's uh, not my website, but it's for the magazine that I still work for. I uh-huh. don't edit the magazine anymore. I don't have time for that, but I do still contribute oh, to it. Good. And uh, so if people want to see what's going on, I guess uh, ancientamerican.com is, is probably yeah. the best place. Okay. Well, again, from my heart, again, thank you, and, and what a true joy to have you here, Frank. Thanks so much for being oh, here. Oh, thank you. And let's let's try to do it again sometime. We will. Let's do it again soon. You Okay. You take care. And just a quick show note as we wrap up here. Um the next show is coming up this Thursday. I've got another scientist on. Um, Joan Sirio will be on the show Thursday at 12 noon Pacific, and she's been on before. We are going to be talking about expanded consciousness and the heart because she's done a lot of research on the heart, Um, and her book is um, actually Hardwired to Heaven, Download Your Divinity Through Your Heart and create your deepest desires. But she has a very, um, um, she has an elaborate scientific background as well. So we may actually talk about the dolphins too, because that's what I'd love to do even more is start flowing, and this is happening more and more, flowing from one show to the next, because I'd like to Joan about some of the work Frank's doing, because I think there's some relationships there, and she has a degree in biology so um, and uh, has been a teacher for many years. So join us. This Thursday 
for that show. Keep an eye on FrontierBeyondFear.com. That's where you can find all shows, past and present, um, and future. And we've got more than five years of them out there now, including previous shows with Frank Joseph. Just do a search for Frank Joseph in the archive, and voila, there they will be. And you can listen to previous shows with him, too. And I can tell you, every one of them has been like this one. We have wonderful conversations. I love having him on as a guest. So with that said, thank you, everyone, for being here. I will see you next time. Thank you.